This is The Guardian. Today, after decades of fighting in the courts, why are the Palestinians of Masafa Yatta being forced off the land? On the southwestern tip of the West Bank, where the valleys of the Hebron Hills lead down to the desert, a collection of villages are dotted across the remote, dusty landscape. The people are farmers who keep mostly sheep, making their life from the milk and the cheese and the yogurt. In the spring, very, very yellow, the mountains and the valleys, because the yellow flower grow everywhere in Masafriyatta. Like his ancestors, Basil Adra has lived in Masafayata, in the village of Atwani, his whole life. We really love to be living in the village because it's special, because it's our type of life, because of our traditions, of our culture. It's a very nice place and we wish we could live here in peace. Last month, Israeli bulldozers rolled into the occupied territory of Masafayata and began destroying the homes of Palestinians. They come to Masafriyat and wiped out at least 20 structures, half of them houses. Cars and tractors were confiscated, and despite living there for generations, yet again, the Palestinians were told they had no right to the land and were being forced out. What is it like to see those demolitions happen? It's terrifying, this demolition. You see 50 soldier police, they come in the area, forcefully taking the family out of their home and beating them. If someone trying to resist, arrest them, even being very aggressive to the children, to the women. I just stand there and document what's going on, and I document hundreds of these demolitions. And it's really heartbreaking to keep filming these demolitions happening without having any power to stop it. In the days before the demolitions in May, after more than 20 years of legal battles and appeals, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that the residents could be evicted from Asafayata. The claim that the Palestinians had rights to land that they had lived and worked on for decades was rejected. And in an unprecedented and controversial move, the court ruled that the Geneva Convention, which stops the forced transfer of people under occupation, did not apply. Here, Israeli law trumped international law. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in focus, life in the firing zone, the occupation of Masafayato. Bethan McKernan, you're The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent and you have reported from across the West Bank. Can you start by telling me, first of all, what kind of place is Masafayata and who lives there? So Masafayata is semi-desert. It's this hilly kind of area in the south of the West Bank before the geography slopes down to the Negev Desert proper. You've got Bedouins, you've got people who are raising sheep and goats and camels. It's about 1,500, 2,000 people living across about 
12 to 15 different villages. And it's a really, really harsh lifestyle, as you might imagine. There's not a lot of water. Temperatures in summer are very hot. Temperatures in winter are very cold. And the people who live in Masafayata have been there for generations. There's even one village called Jinba, which people have built out of the hillside and out of the natural caves. And they're still living that lifestyle, which is kind of incredible in the year 2022. You know, you've hooked up a kitchen and a shower inside what is essentially a big, cool, dark cave. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's quite special. And there's a lot there from a cultural perspective, which it's important gets preserved. So, Bethan, after Israel was formed from within historic Palestine in 1948, Israel then militarily occupied the rest of Palestine, notably the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza from 1967. What has been the status of Masafayata since then? After 1967, Israel began to occupy the West Bank. Israeli government officers announced their victory wipes out previous armistice agreements and frontiers. Which basically meant it was complete Israeli military rule over all of the Palestinians living there. At the same time, after 1967, there started to be this growth in illegal Israeli settlements all over the West Bank. So that could take the form of religiously motivated people who think that the historic land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people who would come and force Palestinians off their land and build their own towns and yeshivas and farms there. It also meant that the Israeli state began designating parts of the West Bank as firing zones, which they said were necessary for military training. So there can't be any civilian presence in a firing zone. And also national parks, you know, environmental reasons, even though under international law, none of this is recognised. That was the status quo up until the Oslo Accords, which were the peace treaties in the early 90s. Today, with all our hearts and all our souls, we bid them shalom, salam. And then after that, the West Bank got divided up into Area A, Area B and Area C. Area A is under full Palestinian control. It means most of the big population centres like Ramallah and Jericho. Mm. Then Area B is under Palestinian and Israeli military control. And Area C is under full Israeli control, civil administration, military, everything. So it sounds like Area A, B, C, it sounds like it's split up into three thirds. But in reality, 60% of the West Bank is Area C. So most of it. Those distinctions were supposed to only last a couple of years. It was supposed to be temporary. But after the peace process broke down, they kind of de facto have become how life works in the West Bank. Masafa Yatta is in Area C, which is under full Israeli control. What does that mean in reality on the ground? Area C is sort of like the intersection of the most brutal aspects of the occupation because it involves Israeli settlers who will come and illegally take over parts of private Palestinian land. And then they've got the army there to basically, if not, actively support them to basically turn a blind eye and let this stuff happen. And then on top of the settlements where Israelis are actually living and farming and they get to be connected to the water system and they get to enjoy the status of an Israeli citizen, the Palestinians who live there are still subject to military law where they're not allowed to connect to the water systems, they're not allowed to build schools, they're not allowed to have solar panels, because the army will tell them that they don't have building permits. But in practice, it's completely impossible to obtain a building permit. So 
on occasion, the military will come and get rid of them. They demolish it. We built a bathroom. They gave us a warrant. We built a school. They want to demolish it. We built a mosque, and that too they ordered demolished. So you've got two completely different systems for people living cheek by jowl sometimes in the same area. So there are lots of different ways in which the Israeli state is trying very hard to move Palestinians to the nearest Palestinian town and from blood that is theirs. How difficult does it make it for people living in Masafayata for years, knowing that their land could be taken from them? So traditionally, back in the Ottoman Empire and the British mandates, people would move around quite a lot and they'd have semi-permanent structures in different places. But since the Israeli occupation, the local people living there have realised that if they don't really sit and stay in what is their land, that if they went off to graze somewhere else, then it would be taken. So traditionally, it's not somewhere that people would live all the year round unless they really, really had to. But the communities living there now, they choose this really hard, really difficult life for a reason, which is that they know that if they don't, they will be forced out of the place. 71-year-old Maryam Jabarin has been living in Samoa town in the Occupy West Bank for almost 60 years. But Israeli authorities always threatening to demolish what they have built. So Maryam and some of her children have moved into nearby caves which can't be demolished. Many settlers pass through here and God alone knows how much fear they create to us. And so just to get this clear, Masafayata was one of those areas within Area C designated a firing zone. On what basis was that decision made? Well, there's actually minutes from a ministerial meeting from 1981 in which, at the time, he was agriculture minister, but later prime minister, Ariel Sharon, he explicitly proposed creating a firing zone in this area, specifically to drive the Palestinians from the land. Basically, a lot of Area C conforms to what the Israeli state planned after 1967. They wanted to annex most of what is now Area C. And mainly it means a big strip that goes north to south from the top of the West Bank to the south of the West Bank on the border with Jordan. The Israeli argument has always been that it needs most of what is now Area C for security reasons. So. Back when Israel was still at war with Jordan, the idea was that it was strategic depth, that it needed this buffer zone from an enemy state on its borders. Now, there's been peace with Jordan for decades. It's very difficult to see how the Israeli presence in Area C is justified. Okay, so Masafa Yatta was designated a firing zone in the 80s. Did it look like the Palestinians would be removed from the land after that? In 1997... There was a court ruling which said that the residents of Masafayata had to leave because the Israeli military had the rights to the land. And about 700 people were rounded up on trucks and forcibly taken to the nearest town. There was an injunction and those people were allowed to return to their homes. So since the late 90s until basically a month ago, that had just been this really weird status quo for the people who lived there to know that this is their right and this is their land where most of them have been for generations and generations. But also knowing that any day the army could come and demolish your house, confiscate your agricultural land, and there are basically very few avenues for you to do anything about it. The people who stuck it out, I mean, they're incredible. They're really, really resilient. And it's very inspiring to see how people have been continuing to fight this for so long. 
Nathan, the court case has essentially been frozen for 20 years, but what has life been like for the people of Masafa Yatta in that time? To kind of give you an idea of what life has been like, last week I met a farmer called Mohammed Ayub who raises goats and sheep. And he just had his house demolished the week before and his whole family are now living in a big tent, basically. So it's him and his family and his two brothers and their families and the grandmother. So you can imagine that's really not a great situation to be in now that the weather's getting hotter. But when I was talking to him, he said, this isn't the first time this has happened. We also had the house demolished in February this year. And in total, I've had my house demolished four times in the last 20 years. Oh my God. Yeah. And there was no question in his mind whether he was going to leave. He will never leave because he knows that the land is his and he knows that it is his right to be there. So these buildings are being demolished because they're supposedly being built illegally within this military training zone. Is the land actually being used by the Israeli Defence Force, the IDF? On paper, they're supposedly there for training purposes. So on my visit last week, there were two Black Hawk helicopters overhead. But what a lot of the residents say is that actually, most of the time, the army aren't there. They just come in when they know there's particular international attention on the area or if there is supposed to be a hearing or a ruling in the case and they sort of arrive a few days before and make a big show of training. Sometimes there's unexploded ordnance. I think one shepherd had a limb blown off last year and occasionally people will get killed, although none in the last couple of years. There is an Israeli organisation called Breaking the Silence, which collects testimonies of former IDF soldiers about what they saw and did when they were enforcing the occupation. And one of the deputy directors there, he was told he was supposed to be there to look for smugglers. But in reality, it was about making people's lives difficult. You're supposed to create a state of uncertainty and a sense of threat. Mm. Those are the actual orders he was given when he was an IDF recruit. That was how he was supposed to treat the people living in that community. Hello, everyone from Masafriyatta. Since the morning until now, happening demolitions from homes in Masafariyatta by Israeli occupation forces, totally apartheid and racism, what are they are doing. Basil, you often start filming when the military comes into Masafariyatta and you have regularly captured them bulldozing houses that they've deemed illegal. What has been your experience of the legal system and how does it impact your life? It's a military and occupation law opposed on us. We don't choose these laws. We don't choose how we want to build our community. Also, they're allowed to enter our homes in the night, to bulldoze our roads, to cut our water pipe, to demolish our homes, arrest people whenever they want. No accountability for that. No way to go do complaints if you get attacked or arrested. Basil, what's it like to have your house raided at night by the army? This is a very scary moment. Not just the people who the army go inside their home, but for the others also. The army come usually after midnight, break onto your door and go inside the house. Most of the time creating like a fake search. Sometimes detain the people like in this two months, 
that they were raiding our home, detained my father twice, beating me very brutally when I was filming them, beating another Israeli activist who was with us. I mean, it's created the fear for the people even to go to sleep well in the next nights, and mostly for my little sisters, I can see it very clear. And me, myself, very worried even a lot of nights to go to sleep because I wait if they will come. If not, think about it. They also used to open their vehicles' doors and just open a stun grenade, throw it in front of our doors and just keep driving. It's 2 in the morning and you're doing operation in our houses. They're doing stun grenades, stun grenades. So, Bethan, not only are the Palestinian residents literally risking life and limb, they're cut off from water, from power grids, they're unable to maintain their homes because they're constantly at risk of demolition. And meanwhile, on the same land, you say Israeli settlements have been growing at an ever-increasing rate. And these neighbourhoods are fully supported with roads, with water, electricity, despite being illegal under international law, and sometimes even in Israeli law. What's going on here? Well, there's a kind of smokescreen that the Israeli state can use, which is whenever they approve new settlement building plans in Area C of the West Bank. Then at the same time, they also approve a handful of Palestinian planning permission applications. But according to Israel's own statistics... 20,000 building permits have been approved for Israeli settlements since 2006. But in that same time period, just 75 building permits have been granted to Palestinians. So when you look at it that way, it's very obvious what is happening here. And yeah, unfortunately, settlement building has continued since the 1960s under every single Israeli government. But there was this particular jump during Donald Trump's administration because, of course, he was particularly friendly with former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was very pro-Israel's right wing. So in just four years, when Trump was president, there was 150% growth in settlement building. So the pace is accelerating. You mentioned earlier that the Palestinian residents also suffer at the hands of the Israeli settlers. What does it look like? How does it manifest? I think sometimes there's this tendency to talk about them as one homogenous group when actually some of them are motivated by the cheaper land, by the possibility for starting up farms. Some of them are motivated for religious reasons. They're quite a diverse bunch, but there is a really violent sector within it who just don't think the Palestinians should be there at all. And the more of Area C they get to take over, it seems like the more violent they get That can involve things like shooting at Palestinian shepherds who are out grazing their sheep or their goats. It can involve actually marching through a Palestinian village and smashing things up. It can involve shooting at car tyres. It can involve beating people up. On some occasions, the settlers even murder the Palestinians whose land that they are stealing in the first place. Sometimes Palestinians do fight back violently. For example, last year, a settler was killed on his way home to the settlement of Homesh in the north of the West Bank. Under international law, these settlers are not supposed to be there, but 
a lot of them just don't see it that way. And the project is to drive everybody who isn't like them off of it. And so for the Palestinians living there, it's just living with a sense of constant conflict. I mean, the attacks that you've described sound awful. If it's not the army coming to bulldoze a toilet that you've renovated, the settlers may be harassing you out of your home. How has this situation escalated in recent years? So a particularly egregious example of this was last year when a group of young Israeli men, settlers, basically marauded through a village called Mufakara. It was in the Jewish holiday, 28th of September, 21. It was an afternoon time when I got a call from a shepherd there that the settlers attacking him. So I started driving back very fast. It took me like 15 minutes, but in a way, I got another two calls at least that telling me the settlers attacking the village of Mufagara. And in that moment, I understood that was like a really scary thing. was so shocking. I never saw in my life something like this, but like over 60 masked settlers with sticks and guns and slang shots, thrown stone everywhere. The windows, the cars. They stepped the goats and cutting the water pipes and water tank. I saw families running away into the other valley with their kids and some of the women collect their children inside the room and close the door, but that didn't save them because settlers keep throwing stones inside the house. And that's how the three years old child, Muhammad, was hit by a big rock in his head. The soldiers were there. They were backing the settlers, shooting tear gas, stun grenades, and live bullets. The soldiers always have one order, which is to just protect the settlers and never stop the settlers of what they are doing. I filmed for three to five minutes maximum that scene, and they had to run away because ten of the settlers were running after me because they saw that I documenting this pogrom that they are committing in that village. And that was the only video that proved the attack in Mufagara. Bethan, as you've said, this court case has been in limbo for over 20 years. How did things change last month? It's dragged on for years and years and years. And there's been a lot of back and forth about proving who was there first, about the reason that the Israeli state has to have this specific area of land. But last month, Israel's Supreme Court finally made a decision on the case of Masafa Yasser. And it basically upheld the army's argument that the villagers living in Masafa Yasser were not permanent residents. They said that they were basically nomadic Bedouin who didn't have a permanent claim to the land. That the residents there couldn't prove that they'd been living in the area before the firing zone was established in the 1980s, and therefore they could be evicted at any time. Bethan, we know Basil's family have lived on this land for decades. Could the residents of Masafa Yatta not have provided evidence to the court? They did. They absolutely did supply evidence to the courts. 
We're talking paperwork and documentation going back in some cases to the British mandate before the state of Israel was even created. In some cases, going back to the Ottoman Empire before that. They also submitted satellite pictures, which show that there were clearly people living in this area. And if you visit, for example, the village of Jinba, which is basically a cave dwelling community, everyone there will tell you, my family have lived here since the Ottoman Empire. You know, this is a very ancient way of living. It's not like people rocked up after 1981 and said, we're going to live in a cave now for the sake of it. But all of that has made no difference in ultimately what everybody feared was going to be the ruling anyway. Okay, so the court said they didn't accept the evidence from the residents. How else did the judges justify the decision? The judges also managed to reject the claim that forcible transfer is prohibited under international law. Under the Geneva Conventions, it's illegal for an occupying power to forcibly evict the occupied people or to repurpose the land that they live on for reasons that don't benefit that local population. So in the specific case of Masafa Yatta, it's very obvious that an army firing zone doesn't benefit the residents living there. And yet the Supreme Court upheld the Israeli army's argument. I think the Geneva Convention's actual wording around that is that the prohibition is binding. And instead, in their ruling, the judges actually said, it's a treaty norm. It's not enforceable in a domestic court. Israeli law supersedes international law, which even by Israeli standards when it comes to the occupation is pretty out there. That's pretty unprecedented. Haggai Alad, you're the director of the Israeli human rights organization Beth Selim, which monitors and advocates against the occupation. Do you remember how you felt when you first heard the Supreme Court's verdict? It turns your stomach. I mean, I, I don't want to say that I was surprised. It routinely approves collective punishment against Palestinians, house demolitions, and almost any other criminal policy that Israel uses against Palestinians, this court has green-lighted at some point. Having said that, still, to wake up to a ruling that spells out this war crime against some of the most impoverished communities in the occupied West Bank, it's terrible. What do you make of the Israeli legal system in light of this ruling? So Israel really invests a lot in quote-unquote due process so that at the end of the day, there will be what looks like court rulings and judicial decisions. But when you actually dive into the essence of this content, then you see beyond this legal theater. You see that these are decisions that are not based on law and not grounded in justice but decisions that are there to serve Israel's project of repressing Palestinians, stealing their land, and successfully getting away with it. Haggai, can you tell me how Masafa Yatha is generally viewed within Israeli society? I think that for most Israeli Jews, it doesn't exist. It's nowhere in the same way that Palestinians and their rights have been made invisible over many years and for most of Israeli Jews. People don't know, and if they know, they don't care. It's been so normalized, this reality of occupation and apartheid against Palestinians, and there's a reason for that. 
The reason that it has become so invisible is because it is successful, because there are no consequences, because the international community is basically continuing to have a very normal relationship with Israel, with economic benefits, diplomatic protection, which at the end of the day underwrite this injustice and simply spells out to the average Israeli Jewish voter that the world is okay with what we're doing to Palestinians. There is no reason to change course. There is no cost. There is no accountability for these crimes. So the real question for the world, for the West, is what kind of relationship do you want to have with apartheid Israel? Coming up, what's next for Basel and the people of Masafiata? Bethan, are we already seeing the consequences of the Supreme Court decision? Actually, the army moved really quickly. Within a week of the Supreme Court decision, basically an Israeli company contracted out by the Israeli government came to demolish nine structures in one village and 11 structures in another. And that's just a week in. So it doesn't bode well for the future. What happens now? Is there any room for a further challenge? It's really hard to see, actually, where this case goes from here. It might be possible to file an appeal. The last time I spoke to one of the lawyers involved, she said that that's what they are working on. But under the Israeli legal system, because the decision of the three judges was unanimous and it was the Supreme Court, technically there should not be any other ways to appeal this. The Israeli government can do anything. There may be a decision to demolish or confiscate the equipment we have, such as electric power or tractors, which transport fodder to our sheep. We don't know what to expect. It's possible they could take it to the International Criminal Court, but there's only been a case open at the ICC into war crimes in the Palestinian territories for the last two years, and you can imagine how much they've got to look at. So the idea that there'll be any kind of ruling there in any timely fashion is very unlikely. And Israel doesn't recognise the ICC's jurisdiction anyway. So on the ground, I'm not sure it would make much difference. And how will it impact other parts of the West Bank? It's interesting. As far as I know, there are not any other legal cases specifically related to people living in firing zones open at the moment. But it does kind of set this strange and worrying precedent that A group of Israeli judges have basically said international law doesn't matter and domestic Israeli law supersedes it. So we'll have to see what happens, but it could set a really devastating precedent for communities living in other disputed areas. Agai, what can the international community do to help the people of Masafayata? It's essential that the Palestinians in Masafayata, but also everywhere, know that they are not invisible to the world, even if they have been made invisible to most Jewish Israelis. They need to know that they're not standing alone in fighting this injustice, and that the kind of oppression, subjugation, that they've been suffering for so many decades will come to an end sooner than later, and that it will happen through the international community, through international public opinion, forcing decision makers around the world to finally move from this empty talk about two-state solution and other promises that have never been fulfilled 
to stand up on the right side of history, to stand up on the side of justice, and to end this endless oppression. Pethan, where will the people of Masafayata go, or where are they expected to go? The people of Masafayata aren't going anywhere. I think, to them, they've been fighting this for the last 40 years, and they are worried that the Supreme Court ruling is going to mean a step up in the pressure on them, but they're not going anywhere. You know, as long as they've got a sense of community and solidarity and they can support each other and they have enough money to keep rebuilding, absolutely no one is abandoning that way of life. Puzzle, what is your understanding of what is happening to the people of Masafayata? Because of my activism, because I lead, because I moved to other places, I know that this is not just happening here. I know this has happened to almost every Palestinian everywhere with different techniques. But in the end, it's all one goal, squeezing the Palestinians in small areas and take more land for the Israelis. What will you do next? What options do you have? For Masafriyata, we're willing and wishing the international community will move seriously and put really serious pressure on Israel to not do what they're planning to do. It's the only hope, to be honest, that we are working on. So we're writing and posting and publishing to make people aware. And after that, they make pressure on their governments, that they pressure Israel to not do that to us. And yes, this is the only hope that we have. Basil, how do you and your community keep going? We keep going in harsh conditions, but it's hard to give up where we will go, like what's the other solution? We don't have other place to go to, so we understand that we need to sit fast in our land and continue our life as much as we can. I don't want to give up. Paso, thank you so much. You're welcome. My thanks to Basil Adra, Hagai Alad, and Bethan McKernan. You can read more about the Masafiata case and follow Bethan's reporting from Jerusalem at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.